You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Vonnie Quinn and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, over the last 24 hours, Bloomberg News has been reporting about potential talks between AstraZeneca and Gilead, two huge uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, maybe getting together in what would be another healthcare uh, M&A trade. To dig a little bit deeper into that story, we welcome Max Neeson, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, as well as Chris Hughes. Chris Hughes, he's a deals columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Um, let's start with you, Chris. Just get a sense of, is this a deal that makes sense strategically, or is this more of a financially driven deal, should something occur? Yeah, it's not obvious it makes a lot of strategic sense for AstraZeneca in the, in the sort of conventional way you think about deals. Um, but both companies have got quite different uh, um, sort of uh, emphases in terms of the, uh, you know, the medicines they, they make. And also AstraZeneca has got a, a really enviable pipeline of drugs already. It's got one of the most attractive drug pipelines in the industry. You know, it's questionable why it would want to do a deal that might actually dilute the quality of that, uh, that pipeline of upcoming drugs. But as you say, from a financial perspective, um, it starts to look more interesting. AstraZeneca's had a really good run on its share price lately, and that gives it um, a good, strong currency to, you know, to pay for a deal like this. And actually, even though it's got a strong share price and an attractive pipeline of drugs, AstraZeneca's cash generation at this point in time actually isn't that great. Now, contrast that with uh, Gilead, Gilead's actually got um, pretty good cash generation. So if you put the two together, you actually have a, a business which financially has a much more uh, solid profile. Max, would either of the companies have been looking to team up and is there a chance that this might turn hostile at some point? Um, you know, I, I would be a little bit surprised about that. Well, the, the likelihood of this actually happening still seems relatively slim to me. Um, you know, Gilead, uh, in, in its own right, has had something of a, a, a pump up to its valuation based on its work from Desivere. It might want to capitalize on that by, by you know, getting a return by, by solidifying that, that increase. Um, you know, the fact that the currency would be so heavily made up of, of AstraZeneca shares is something that would make them quite resistant. And, um, you know, given the fact that both both companies are separately working on on different pharmaceutical efforts uh, against the pandemic, I, I think they might want to avoid, um, you know, ma- making this into a, a hostile fight. Mm. Yeah, Max, just following up on that, is there a, the timing seems odd, obviously, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic here. Is any of this deal, you know, centered around the science of somebody's got a drug or maybe if we put a couple of drugs together between these two companies or if we put our resources behind, is anything driven by the COVID uh, vaccine potential or treatment potential? Uh, I I don't think that's the case because these are two very different approaches. You have Gilead's, which is a a treatment, um, you know, something for acutely ill people, and then AstraZeneca working on, on a vaccine, a prophylactic um, you know, scientifically and and from a manufacturing perspective, two two kind of entirely different things, and and one where there's not really likely to be an additive effect. Um, if anything, trying to complete what would be a a very large and, and complicated transaction might might actually distract from those efforts. 
If Gilead says no thanks, and let's be clear, we're hearing that, you know, there's absolutely not going to be a deal, of course, and, and you always hear these kinds of rumours around deals, so everything needs to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. But if Gilead says absolutely no, we do not want to partner with a larger company at the moment, is there another company that AstraZeneca might be interested in, Chris? Well, that's an interesting question because... The very fact that AstraZeneca is sort of knocking on doors, um, uh, you know, even though it has this essentially strong pipeline, does raise questions about kind of how it sees its future at the moment, you know, as a on a standalone basis. Um, I mean, it has got this strong strong share price, which uh, does provide this takeover currency. If it if it could persuade another company to uh, accept that. Um, but the real question is kind of why does it? Why would it want to uh, to, to dilute that other than uh, finding another company, I guess, which has similar uh, a similar sort of cash generating profile to uh, Gilead, and also is sort of in the zone to do a deal, and also is willing to take on um, you know the risk of integrate uh, a difficult integration, and you know negotiate it. Uh, in a very difficult environment. I mean, it's quite hard to... That list of potential candidates is probably not very high. It's a very hard environment to do deals in. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go, Chris. It seems like this is a really odd time to do a deal, again, in the middle of a pandemic. But I'm looking at the share prices, and neither company's moving that much. Does that kind of suggest to you as a a deals reporter that, you know, the odds of this really being in the works um, are pretty low? Well, AstraZeneca was... Sort of down a bit at the open um, uh, in Europe this morning, which suggested that investors were you know, a bit concerned about possibly the company doing something that would take it in a different direction uh, and would issue involve a lot of stock issuance. And I think Gilead was uh, called up to. I haven't seen where it is at, at the moment, but um, investors are taking—you know—they're not—they uh, are taking seriously the possibility that, uh, that something could happen. Now, as you say, this is a strange moment to be doing something. Uh, like this. I mean, any deal that involves combining your company with another one or selling it, you know, it's a, that's a critical moment in your uh, career history as a, C, as a CEO. And it's uh, very, it, it involves delicate negotiations. You know, it's quite hard to do all that over, you know, over, over, over Zoom or some other video conference. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tricky one. And also doing all the, all the due diligence. So, um, I think it's one thing to have the idea and make the approach, but to actually nail down a deal and um, you know, virtually shake hands on it, um, it is difficult. Now, the question is what happens if the uh, uh, pandemic hopefully uh, eases and conditions for actually having face-to-face talks um, and doing more substantial due diligence um, you know, become much easier. Now, then, then, at that point, that this become much more real. All right, well, we will continue to watch this space with acute interest. And our thanks to both of you, that is Chris Hughes and Max Neeson, both internally here at Bloomberg reporting on pharma. And, of yep. course, Max has been doing a phenomenal job throughout the pandemic as well, just on the uh, virology and everything else, Paul. How was your first day, Vonnie, on Bloomberg Markets? Oh, my gosh. It felt like I'd never jumped off the bicycle in the first place. Exactly. It's great to have you on board. Uh, uh, Well, do join us tomorrow with another full slate and looking forward to being back in the chair from uh, Paul Sweeney and myself, Vonnie Quinn, and everybody else here. This is Bloomberg. 
delighted to bring in our next guest, now a regular on the show. Bill Smead joins us from Seattle. Bill, great to have you to discuss these markets. Thanks for having us. So when the market hit lows back in March, your son Cole was on. He said it was one of the great stock buying opportunities in history. It's clear that he wasn't wrong when you have the likes of Stanley Druckenmiller saying he didn't take enough risk at the lows. What did you do exactly and how has the trade worked out? Well, we tacked toward the opportunities that were created by the complete destruction of economic optimism. And we operated under the theory that at major historical change points, the existing trend gets exacerbated, the positive part of it, to the upside, and the existing trend gets exacerbated to the downside. So what you had was a complete and total capitulation uh, on value and a complete, uh, you've, you've had the biggest growth orgy maybe ever uh, in the last uh uh, four or five years. So that was exacerbated in March. We, I could see that even though we were practically nauseous every time we put in a buy order, we <laughs> tacked toward the deepest, most out of favor things that people thought wouldn't come back anytime soon. They thought it was going to be years before anybody wanted to go shopping. And, and then now we found out that even looters know where to shop. Hmm. So, Bill, give us some sectors where you think there's there's some value. There's still some value. Again, we've had this big, strong move off of the bottom here. Has the low-hanging fruit been had, or where are you guys still looking here? Well, certainly the most extreme bargains uh, have had a, a big bounce, but this is a historical change point. So where there's still lots of value, uh, you know, the banks were – as cheap as they were at the bottom in 09. But yet, on a relative basis, just think how cheap they were then if, if they, they matched price-to-book value similar to back then. Uh, so Wells Fargo was all the way up to 33, down from, what, 60 or 55, right? There, there's loads of room in the banks. There's loads of room in the owners of the malls. Uh, we have been doing a lot of channel checks. We, we, we are in Arizona, so we've been going to a lot of, of uh, malls and outlet malls, and we're seeing Macy's, which we don't own the stock, but we own the malls where their stores are located. The parking lot on both sides at Arrowhead Town Center was packed. So I, I find it so fascinating. Everyone is thinking about how our behavior is, is changed by being imprisoned for two and a half months. And I, I think they're forgetting that once we're not in prison, we're not going to be super attracted to things that we had to do when we were in prison. They're going to be attracted to things they weren't able to do while they were in prison. So, Bill, it's interesting. When I think about it, you know, some of the the, the market bounce here, and I'm not sure the market – or let's put it this way. How do you feel about a potential second wave and how that might impact the economy and the markets? It seems like most people feel like there will be a second wave of this virus. Is that something that you are thinking about as you think about putting trades on? The, the biggest risk in the stock market is that the market massively overcapitalized growth stocks. That's the biggest risk in the market. 
let me just give you one example and not to pick on them because they're a great company. This has nothing to do. The things I'm going to say now have nothing to do with the quality of the underlying company. But let's just take Costco, for example. Will business ever be better for you than when the government closes most of your competitors and forces people to only come to your store? Does it ever get better than that? Well, the answer is no. So Costco is a relatively mature, large growth company, and it's trading at 35 times earnings. If you go back and look at history, a mature, highly thought of growth company would trade at 20 times earnings. So if the S&P 500 uh, topped out uh, early this year, which, by the way, we're not convinced that the S&P is not topping out here, uh, then those glamour growth stocks have got huge P.E. reductions to go through. It's like a weight loss program. Oh, I, I need to lose I, I need to lose thirty percent of my price earnings ratio. Well, to do that, you more than likely have to lose twenty five percent of your stock market value. So that's where the risk is. The risk is not that there's a correction in the deeply oversold stuff that has bounced. the The risk is, I mean, look at today. Somebody comes out, puts a three thousand some odd price target on Amazon. Is there any institutional investor on the planet that hasn't stocked up on Amazon? Who's the <laughs> who's the buyer at the margin going to be? Where, where's the money going to come from? The the the, the, the so the, the the situation is it looks very attractive for value investors if they can if they can keep from getting hurt too much on holding winners from the growth sectors that have performed so well. All right, Bill, we have to leave it there, but thank you so much. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you. That is Bill Smead there of Smead Capital. Yeah, they were going in, uh, you know, buying some things at the bottom there. So he's obviously had some nice trades there. there the value stocks were even more value uh, back in March. But uh, the value stocks, as you know, Vani, have kind of, you know, always been a, a tough trade for investors. Well, as the pandemic finds its way through to some of the emerging markets, the impact on not just the humanitarian impact on the populace, but also the economic impact is going to be pronounced to get a sense of kind of how this might play out. Glad to welcome back Bill Rhodes. Bill, uh, joining us once again, President and CEO of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors, former Citibank chairman. Bill, thanks so much uh, for staying with us here this morning. You know, we think about China here. Give us a sense of how China is going to play here, because China, the, as I think about the financial crisis, they were actually one of the economies, as you mentioned earlier, that actually lifted uh, the global economy out of uh, kind of the recession. Right now, that doesn't appear to be the case. Plus, they're also a big creditor here. What role do you expect China to play here over the next several months and perhaps years? I think that's a, a really important uh, question, Paul. And I think that when we take a look at the One Belt, One Road, which is a program uh, that China uh, began a few years ago to lend money to emerging market countries to improve infrastructure uh, and other, uh, supposedly health systems, uh, they have outstanding, according to the uh, Kiel Institute of World Economy in Germany, uh, over $520 billion. Some people think it could even be higher than that, seven or $800 billion. And it's not clear that the Chinese are prepared to uh, write off or extend, restructure these loans. And this is key. They are also not a member of the Paris Club, which is the, is the entity which uh, manages and coordinates 
the restructuring of sovereign debt by the developed countries. They, they are only an observer. And so their attitude, I think, unwilling to look at things like debt forgiveness and restructuring, uh, these loans are, are really key. This is why I think all of this has come together to make it uh, the worst uh, emerging market debt crisis in, in, the, in the last half century. Certainly since World War II, you'd have to go back to a situation to the Great Depression to find anything as serious as we're facing today in the emerging market. So China is really the unknown quantity here as to what they will do and how they'll cooperate. Yeah, and it's not just that. It's that capital is also getting sucked out of these markets, Bill, as investors decide to head for the hills and go somewhere a bit more favorable. What can these emerging markets do to attract capital back? Well, I think one of the things they have to do is they they have to go to international financial institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, and try and get as, as much as possible, get aid in this particular moment. Also, the G20 is key here. On the last G20 meeting, they agreed uh, to postpone uh, you know, debt, uh, sort of a form of temporary debt forgiveness to the uh, debt forgiveness till the end of the year. The question is, what are they going to do afterwards? And uh, I think getting control of COVID is very, very important. One country that goes unnoticed here uh, in the emerging markets that actually has a, the best record of, of all of them. Uh, perhaps equal to Taiwan, but Taiwan is not really an emerging market country, is Vietnam. Uh, it's amazing. They have had no deaths, and they have done the best uh, work in this area, uh, and it's, it's really almost unknown. Uh, and so what it shows is a country can take the proper steps if it recognizes that it has this problem with the pandemic, uh, and then try and reopen once they see that they have it under control. So the question here is you, you have to get it under control and then open up in an orderly fashion. Uh, so I think then capital could eventually flow back. But right now, it's what they can do on restructuring their debt uh, and getting support from international financial institutions. And very importantly, the private sector is deeper in the debt uh, than we've seen, as I said, in the last half century. And that's going to be even more difficult to deal with than the sovereign. All right, Bill. So, you know, back in the day in the Latin American debt crisis, the various countries would come to you at Citibank or the good folks at even, you know, the old chemical bank or the Chase Manhattan Bank and say, listen, we need to kind of sit down and rework this. Now, the debt is not necessarily owned by big financial institutions per se in New York, the big banks, but by hedge funds and others. How can this play out in any timely fashion? Well, I think that's a key question because when we did the restructurings uh, uh, at the time of the Latin American debt crisis, and even in the beginning of the Asian financial crisis, uh, most of the uh, most of the indebtedness was was uh, the paper was held by banks. But since the Brady Plan, uh, it's been securitized, and as you say, it's hedge funds, money market funds, you name it, hold most of this paper. So it's not like getting. 20, 30 banks around the table and cutting a deal. It's much more difficult uh, to do. So this is why you need a more orderly process working with the uh, IMF, uh, the World Bank, and uh, the Paris Club uh, as soon as you can. And Africa particularly has a very difficult situation. And uh, uh, 
you have so many countries that are highly indebted there, and it, it, you know, when you take a look at the outstanding, there's no way that they can pay back this debt anytime soon. So you need a major effort by the G20, which includes China, uh, to put a program forth to help these countries regain market access. And the uh, financial sector on mm. the private sector side has got to uh, be able to participate in this also. Yeah, Bill, does it matter if the U.S. doesn't recognize some of these institutions? I mean, right now, that's not the case, but you just never know. And, you know, I'm just looking at WCRS on the Bloomberg. The Rand is down 17% versus the dollar year to date. The Lira down 12.5%. The Ruble down 10%. I mean, there's a serious deficit here. Well, I think one of the problems is that when you take a look at the currency markets, although the dollar has been under uh, <clears throat> under attack recently, basically these countries borrowed uh, in foreign currency, mostly in dollars, but also euros, and they're going to have a real difficult time in, uh, in, in paying back, which exacerbates the situation even more. So what you have to do is to, is to basically get the international financial institutions working with uh, these uh, bondholders uh, and buy time so these countries can get over this pandemic and start, uh, you know, getting people back to work. It's a tough process, and I really think the, the most difficult uh, economic problem that we will face getting the world back to growth is in the emerging markets. It's not in Europe. It's not in the United States or China. It's not in the developed world. It's in the developing world. And we've never seen anything quite like this uh, since all the bond defaults in, uh, of the emerging market countries in the Great Depression. Bill, it is always great to get your perspective, particularly on topics like this. And it seems, unfortunately, like there is never any shortage. So, Bill, thanks for joining us today. That is William R. Rhodes of William R. Rhodes Global Advisors. And I'm just getting an email from one of our EM experts in-house, Paul Damien Sassauer, talking about how, <laughs> right? It's a good yep. timing, talking about how actually it's shifting. The sentiment across major EM ETFs seems to be getting better. Flows are accelerating sharply. So that's something, I suppose, some kind of a signal anyway. Yeah, to because investors. boy, back in March, it was just, you know, nobody had any appetite for anything emerging market. Yeah, exactly. This is Bloomberg Markets with Paul Sweeney and Bonnie Quinn on Bloomberg Radio. And welcome to Bloomberg Markets, as the man said. So let's get to our next conversation now with virologist from Harvard University, Dr. Peter Kulchinski. Actually, extremely excited to speak with you. You're the author of The Great American Drug Deal, a new prescription for innovative and affordable medicines. So, Dr. Kulchinski, will it be the great American drug that provides us with our vaccinations or will it be the great Chinese drug? Hi. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I, I should point out, um, I, I am a scientist by training. I did my uh, virology training at Harvard, but uh, for my whole career, I've been a biotechnology investor, a venture capitalist. So mm-hmm. I look at this industry from the standpoint of an investor evaluating a lot of different companies. And I think that um, while China uh, has been a, a larger player in the drug development um, industry over the last uh, 10, 15 years, um, I think that uh, the COVID response globally has been somewhat nationalistic. And my guess is that uh, China is going to conserve its vaccine doses for its own people. And, you know, Europe is looking to lock down doses. And so the U.S. Uh, is going to be uh, getting doses from companies that it's contracted with. So, Peter, I mean, you know, some people have been talking about, you know, whoever gets it first 
maybe should just license it to everybody else for the the common good. Is that a is that something you think could happen here, or is this something that maybe some of these companies are yeah. going to look to profit off of? You know, if only it worked that way. But you know, the, uh, getting there first, it's not like writing a book and being able to just hit publish and then there's infinite downloads. Uh, you know, you can get there first, and then you have to actually scale up manufacturing. And so the first vaccines that are likely to prove out maybe uh, later this fall, um, they're still going to be constrained by the fact that, you know, companies are going to be scaling up manufacturing and maybe getting to the point of tens of millions of doses. You know, if we get to 100 million doses by the end of this year, collectively across a few vaccines, that'll be amazing. But that's not enough to vaccinate, you know, even the, the U.S., let alone U.S. and Europe and, you know, all the other countries that are out there. So as an investor who is very familiar with how these drugs are developed and these vaccines are developed, where have you been investing, Dr. Kotinsky? Uh, you can call me Peter. Uh, and uh, we, don't, we don't talk about where we specifically have been invested. We're a regulated entity, but you know, people can look up our public filings. Um, but we, we've been uh, certainly looking and, uh, to support companies that are working on a range of products from vaccines to small molecule uh, drugs like wouldn't it be great to have an oral version of remdesivir so that a person can just uh, show up at the hospital be diagnosed be sent home with a prescription um, and not have to stay in the hospital getting IV infusions so Peter what do you make of the uh, Bloomberg News has been reporting over the last day or so about a potential deal between AstraZeneca and Gilead is that something that you think if there is some talks going on would that be something driven by the coronavirus, maybe a need to get scale in production, or what do what do you make of no, that potential? I, I think I think it's totally unrelated. You got a 140 billion market cap company, a 90 something billion market cap company. Their valuations are not tied to you know anything to do with coronavirus. Uh, and you know these are if these discussions are even real, they're uh, you know related to other things, more like oncology probably. On that, the scaling problem, I mean, obviously, almost any company, probably every company that does come up with a vaccine will have this problem. It would seem to me like that that might be the, the profit center. So if you're an investor looking at various areas, do you avoid, you know, the, 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 the drug companies that are engaging in research and development and you just go straight for the smaller companies potentially that will provide the ability to these winners to scale? Um, well, they, they're quite sizable companies that are enabling others to scale. Uh, And I think right now you're absolutely right. It's actually unclear where the profits are going to be in the drugs and vaccines. You know, there are some well-meaning people who say that all these products should just be given away at cost. I think that's probably a terrible way to inspire the private sector to, you know, risk capital to, you know, help save the world. I think that it makes sense for there to be some reward for that. Um, But we already have a mechanism for that. We've got BARDA, for example, a, a government agency uh, giving out massive contracts to companies that have promising uh, vaccines uh, in order to uh, help them scale up their manufacturing even before they've proven that their vaccine works, you know, funding uh, manufacturing at risk, uh, as they say, and in exchange, uh, securing doses for Americans. And so BARDA's given funding now to uh, J&J and Novavax and Moderna and, you know, companies uh, that are... Uh, taking all kinds of different approaches in order to hedge our bets. 
Peter, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, your thoughts and insight. Dr. Peter Kolchinski, Managing Director of RA Capital Management based in Boston, also the author of the book entitled The Great American Drug Deal, A New Prescription for Innovation and Affordable Medicines. And Vani, I think, you know, Peter hit on one of the big issues here. It's uh, Let's assume that somebody comes up with a, with a VAT vaccine. Uh, certainly people are working on it, but how do you scale manufacturing and scale distribution? Exactly. And you definitely have seen some some small deals. And I acknowledge he said that, you know, obviously it's the bigger companies that can help companies scale better. But you have seen small deals go down with with some of the companies that are looking to manufacture vaccines buying you know other manufacturers so that they could potentially scale up quickly but it will be interesting to see because you know it isn't clear that these vaccines if they do indeed emerge will make money for their for their uh, for their companies yeah. Uh, yeah and if they do it'll be a long time it will be. And, and then obviously the question everybody wants answered right now is when. When will uh, vaccines be ready so that we can presumably get back to a more uh, normal life, if you will? So that's the big issue for big pharma.